We're back, and I think we have to uh, start our second segment with the following item off WashingtonPost.com. This, uh, this came out on Monday. It was noted that an advisor to President Bush said on Monday that Bush's photographs in the company of disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff amounted to a coincidence and shouldn't be interpreted any more seriously than that. He doesn't have a personal relationship with him, said White House Counselor Dan Bartlett of Bush and Abramoff. We acknowledge that he, Abramoff, attended some Hanukkah celebrations, Bartlett said in an appearance on NBC's Today Show. But, quote, any suggestions by critics or anyone else to suggest the president is doing something nefarious with Abramoff is absurd. The Bush White House has not released any photos featuring the president and Abramoff, who was declared a Bush pioneer in 2004 for raising at least $100,000 for the Bush-Cheney campaign. Bush himself has said he doesn't recall meeting Abramoff. Both Washingtonian and Time magazines have reported the existence of about a half dozen photos showing the two together, however. Here's the part I like best. The White House, after playing down the Bush-Abramoff photos and the lobbyists' ties to the president, criticized Abramoff for breaking the law. Spokeswoman Dana Perino said Mr. Abramoff admitted being involved in outrageous wrongdoing. And we have to agree here at Radio Parallax that this does indeed distinguish Mr. Abramoff from George Bush, who is, to our knowledge, has never admitted being involved in outrageous wrongdoing. And as speaking of Bush 43, we need to quote an email sent to us by Jerry, who was quoted in the Booman Tribune saying the following... It has become increasingly clear that the Bush administration has no compunction about exercising its power to punish enemies. James Monroe, the award-winning journalist who authored the best-selling book, Bush's Brain, How Karl Rove Made George W. Bush Presidential, has found himself on the infamous no-fly list, a list that is free of oversight and apparently immune from appeal. And I think we need to quote Mr. Moore uh, as posted on Ariana Huffington's uh, website. Said James Moore, I made it a point to arrive very early at the airport. My reservation was confirmed before I left home. I went to the electronic kiosk and punched in my confirmation number to print out my boarding pass and luggage tags. An error message appeared. Please see agent. I did. She took my Texas driver's license and punched in the relevant information into her computer. I'm sorry, sir, she said. There seems to be a problem. You have been placed on the no-fly watch list. Excuse me? I'm afraid there isn't much more I can tell you, she explained. It's just that the list is maintained by the TSA to check for people who might have terrorist connections. You're serious? I'm afraid so, sir. Here's an 800 number in Washington. You need to call them before I can clear you for the flight. More goes on. I dialed the number from my cell, determined to clear up what I was sure was a clerical error. The woman who answered offered me no more information than the ticket agent. Ma'am, I'd like to know how I got on the no-fly watch list. I'm not really authorized to tell you that, sir, she explained after taking my, down my social security number and Texas driver's license number. Well, what can you tell me? All I can tell you is that there's something in your background that in some way is similar to someone they are looking for. Well, 
let me get this straight, I said. Our government is looking for a guy who may have a mundane Anglo name, who pays tens of thousands of dollars a year in taxes, has never been arrested or even late on a credit card payment, who is more uninteresting than a Tupperware party and cries after the first two notes of the national anthem. We need to find this guy, huh? Well, he sounds dangerous to me. I'm sorry, sir. I've already told you everything I can. Oh, wait, I said. One last thing. This guy they're looking for. Did he write books critical of the Bush administration, too? Moore concludes, I've been on the no-fly watch list for a year. I will never be told the official reason. No one ever is. You cannot sue to get that information. Nothing I have done has moved me any closer to getting off the list. There were 35,000 Americans in that database last year. According to a European government that screens hundreds of thousands of American travelers every year, the list they have been given to work from has grown to 80,000. All right, I seem to be in a political vein, so let's continue in that. I, I came across an old uh, chronicle out in the garage that I tore apart, but noticed an article uh, dated 3-1899. It was from uh, then-Attorney General Janet Reno, who was blasting the independent counsel statute. She said the Justice Department could handle probes better. I got a chuckle out of that because the day before, the following was in the New York Times. After the longest independent counsel investigation in history... The prosecutor in the case of former Housing Secretary Henry Cisneros is finally closing his operation with a scathing report accusing Clinton administration officials of thwarting an inquiry into whether Cisneros evaded paying income tax. The marathon legal saga of the prosecutor, David Barrett, lasted more than a decade, consumed $21 million, and for legal experts and some in government became a symbol of the flawed effort to prosecute high-level corruption through the use of the independent prosecutor. Now, as I recall this story, Cisneros had a, a mistress on the side that he was giving gifts to and he hadn't paid some taxes on it. And, you know, I, I'm sure there's some corruption involved there. M maybe not quite at the same level of some of what's been going on of late in Washington, but, you know, I'm sure that he probably cheated the government out of some dough. So we went out and spent $21 million in effort to recover what? What? hundred grand? Your tax dollars at work, ladies and gentlemen. All right, returning to the program is our aviation correspondent, of Vladimir Zerevika. Welcome back, Vlado. Thank you, Doug. Great to be here. We should remind our listeners that, you know, you being a pilot and myself having a, a, a background in biological sciences, naturally, some time ago on the show, we tackled the issue of Chinese exploration <laughs> of the ancient world. Yes, I, I remember that when we discussed it. And, uh, you know, we went a little bit far afield, but I thought it was a good little segment talking about the famous emperor. Well, we never did establish whether it's Zheng He or Cheng Ho. I guess it's Zheng He. That works. Well, we, we need to return to this, this unlikely subject for us to tackle because of some recent news. Did you see The Economist a couple weeks ago? Yes, I did. Well, uh, for those who didn't, we should note that the January 14th issue of The Economist on page 80 shows a picture of a map, and uh, the, it's titled, Chinese Cartography, China Beat Columbus to It, Perhaps. And, and it he, was not the first such claim, was it? Well, no, because I guess you read the book by the man you mentioned on the show last time, Gavin Menzies, who is a former British Navy submarine commander, he feels that Zheng He actually got to the New World, and uh, we mentioned it last time. 
uh, in passing because we were we, we were talking about what was more definitely established historically. But the, the, the controversy has been rekindled. Yes, it has. Now, I, I kind of cut you off last time. Menzies in the book claims that, that these Chinese junks actually got here to California. They got to California, actually to both sides of uh, North and South America, both the East and West Coasts, and uh, into San Francisco Bay. But there is no good evidence for this. There is a lot of circumstantial evidence that he uh, piles together quite well, but there's no uh, definite authoritative uh, smoking gun, if you will. Well, uh, they're trying to authenticate this map. It is claimed that it is a map drawn in 1763. Uh, apparently a lawyer in a well-known Beijing law firm, an amateur historian, bought the map for $500 in a Shanghai bookstore in 2001. Subsequently discovered that it may have more value. The map says on it it's a reproduction of a map dated 1418. True. So even if it is authenticated to the uh, 18th century, it still will leave some doubt uh, as to whether or not uh, it was reproduced from a 1400s map. In the article, it did mention that all of the information in the 18th century map was already known by Europeans. Therefore, not giving any conclusive evidence either, just fueling the controversy. So even if it is dated to 1763, it doesn't prove that it's the copy of the 1418 map. Correct. Now, uh, they did note in the Economist article that some of the errors in this, in this supposed 1418 map uh, turned up in European maps not long afterward, uh, giving it some credibility to the case, most striking the fact that California on this map is drawn as an island. Indeed. And if, if I remember my uh, California history, the name California came from the fact that uh, the island where mythical women uh, lived were ruled by a queen called Calafia, and that's how the name California came about. Well, this map that I'm looking at looks pretty good. It shows South America as kind of a blob, but it does have an isthmus that looks like, you know, looks like the correct anatomy of Central America. They left off Florida, but it's Got the outlines. It's suspiciously high in the latitudes. I mean, I don't know. It's got, it looks like, oh my God, it's got the St. Lawrence Seaway on here. Oh, and it did show it that the Northwest Passage was uh, free of ice. Yeah, which is wrong. <laughs> I believe that in, uh, in the book, Menzies uh, uh, had uh, dealt with that in the uh, 15th century, the uh, uh, glaciers being in different positions in the polar uh, ice cap. Hmm. being different than it is now. Well, we'll have to follow this story. Apparently, the man that bought it is not going to put it up for sale, although they're claiming if they can authenticate it, it'd be worth millions and millions. This is true. But he does claim that that he uh, that is not his purpose. Well, you know, we're going to have to get a, a genuine historian that knows something about this on this show. In the meantime, you and I continue to muddle through. But it is an interesting topic, to be sure. Let's not let facts keep us from speculating. We should get the name of the book again. It's a 1421, The Year China Discovered the World by Galvin Menzies. All right, our final item for today's uh, second segment is uh, the, 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 the hubbub over, uh, apparently, author James Fry, who wrote the bestseller A Million Little Pieces, apparently taking some liberties with the facts. 
This, of course, was a selection of Oprah Winfrey's, uh, I guess, uh, book club. She went on to Larry King to defend uh, James Fry when he was being interviewed by Mr. King. This apparently came out of The Smoking Gun, a website devoted to investigative reporting that after they posted a damning story with the tantalizing tagline, The Man Who Conned Oprah. They then told how Frey had embellished, and in some cases fabricated, significant events in the vomit-stained account of his drug-addicted life. Frey admitted to King that he had taken dramatic license, but said he stood by, quote, the essential truth, unquote, of his life. Well, we think this would be a good time here on Radio Parallax to clear up a couple issues, just to make sure that, you know, there's no misunderstandings. We want to state for the record that we didn't literally win a George Polk Award in 2003 for broadcast excellence. Point two, we were only joking when we said that our producer, Mr. McMillan, had actually been George Martin's assistant in the recording studio when, they, when the Beatles recorded Abbey Road. And finally, it wasn't completely accurate to have stated that your host on this program played Tevya uh, on Fiddler on the Roof, which then was the longest-running musical in the history of the island of Barbados. The confusion may have arisen from the fact that I have, in fact, been to the island of Barbados, and I did see a production of Fiddler on the Roof. However, Tavia was played by Theodore Bikel. Nevertheless, we feel in spite of taking some dramatic license with the truth, we stand by the essential truth of the above. Exactly like author James Fry. I'm Douglas Everett, this is Radio Parallax, and you're listening to KDVS, 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento, and this actually isn't Theodore Bacall, it's the immortal Zero Mostel as Tevye. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many years. Here in Anatevka, we have our traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, how to work, even how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered, we wear these little prayer shawls. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you, I don't know, but it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone here knows who he is and what God expects him to do. children say his daily prayers and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word